0: Let the good news come now, O Lord, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we are going to um, wrap up our conversation about buzzwords today. Uh, buzzwords, we've been... Uh, listening to you know we we know buzzwords from uh, elsewhere in the world that we have them in our workplaces and in our homes even um, the politics the world is filled with buzzwords but christians have buzzwords too and so what we're going what we've been looking at um, is the way that christian buzzwords sometimes are confusing that they mean one thing to, to people in the church and they mean something else to people outside the church or maybe they mean something uh, much worse for people outside the church so we began by looking at the word faith and we saw that for Christians, faith is a good thing. F- faith means trusting God. That we have we have um, uh, enough enough evidence to convince us that 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 God is uh, faithful and that we can trust God. And that if we have gaps in our knowledge, that um, God will make those up for us. But people outside the church, what they hear when we say faith is not that they hear things like a belief that that um, is not warranted by the evidence, or um, even. Uh, uh, pretending to believe things that you know aren't so. And so... Uh, so, we need to be careful when we 're talking to people outside the church to make sure they understand what we mean when we say faith and the other word we 've been looking at is the word "sin," which is maybe even worse because if if we if we have faith and people don 't then they say well you 're a dummy, but if we say we have we 'd like to talk to you about your sin, then they hear that as judgment, and so we always have to begin a conversation about sin by by reminding people of two two kind of uh, bedrock pieces of foundation that that we have to build any conversation on. And the first one is that every person is a child of God. That everybody you know, everybody you will ever meet, that God looks at them and smiles and says, that is my child. That, that no matter what the circumstances of their life, no matter what people have told them, they may, they may believe that God hates them, that, that God has has no use for people like them. But the place we always have to begin is the idea that God is looking at people and saying, there's a child of mine, there's somebody I love Desperately, so we have to begin with that. The other part we have to begin with is the acknowledgement that Christians are sinners. We're not. We're not uh, putting ourselves in a position where we can say us good people versus you bad people. The Christians are saying we're talking about uh, evil in humanity, and the nature of that is that it affects all of us to one degree or another. So. We began with those, those two provisos and then we just added one more thing just practically. We don't want to insult people by saying because you're not a believer, because you're not a Christian, you can't possibly lead a virtuous life. We want to say of course Christians can lead virtuous lives. And the reason for that is because they have, they have subsumed their natural desires. They have said, they have said, my natural desire is to get what I want, to see the people around me as tools to help me get what I want. But, Instead of treating people that way, I will treat them as if they're unique individuals. And so whether they're Christians or not, they say, I'm going to treat you the way I would like to be treated if I were in your circumstances. And so, so that's what it takes to be virtuous, and you don't have to be a Christian to do that. So, so non-Christians can certainly lead virtuous lives. But that was kind of the diagnosis. We talked about what sin is. We talked about how it affects people. We talked about how it affects Christians in the same way it affects um, non-Christians. But we left it there. And so today what I'd like to do is talk about where do we go from that? How do we turn that diagnosis into good news? How do we, how do we leave the doctor's office feeling better than we did when we went in? And that's, that's what I want to talk to us about today. And so today we're going to talk about the solution, the, the, the remedy for sin. And we begin with this idea that Christ shows us what true humanity looks like. The problem with sin is it diminishes our humanity. We begin to see people as objects. We don't, we don't see people as, as people. And they see us, to whatever extent they have sin in their life, they see us as obstacles or as tools. And so that is a reduction of true humanity. You say, well, I'm not sure if that's what true humanity is all about. And, uh, the reason that we need Christ is because We don't know what true humanity looks like. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about the ways that, that uh, Christ shows us what true humanity is. The first part is that we don't see true humanity. We think we do. I mean, I know, I know we do. But when I got my glasses, I thought I could see pretty good. And then I put my glasses on and it was like, oh, so this is what it looks like. That we don't see things clearly because sin has affected us. Sin lies to us. Sin says, you're okay. You're a pretty good guy. And what sin does is it confuses it. It it, it makes us look at the world differently. And when we put on glasses, when we, when we have a model to look at and say, oh, so that's what true humanity looks like, then we know what, what is the, the thing that we're aiming at, whether we know it or not. Mostly what we do is instead is we feel some vague sense of that really wasn't the way I should have handled that or I'm not proud of that moment or I'm glad my mom wasn't watching me or whatever it was that, that we, we have some sense that we're doing not what we should, but we don't have a sense of what we, what we should do. And so the first idea is that God gives us a model who is Christ and by looking at him, we can see things the same way I can see you without my glasses, but it's so much better when I've got a model than when I'm just trying to imagine what you might look like. So uh, Jesus shows us um, things. Um, so the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Uh, Jeremiah was not was not a sunny person by nature. And so instead of saying, you need glasses, he says, you're blind as a bat. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Jeremiah says, there's no. this is a hole with no bottom. Um, and and you know the degree to which you see Jeremiah as as maybe just on a bad day you know he had a bad meal that night or whatever he's he's got a very negative outlook but the the thing he's he's saying is that we can't trust our own Instincts. We can't trust our own feelings. We say, well, I know that I'm, I'm wrong, but I just don't know how, how wrong I am. So, so the first thing is we don't know what we're looking at. The other thing is we see those other people around us and we'll say, well, well, I'm not as bad as that person. So uh, Paul says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself for you judge, um, for you who judge others, um, do the very same thing. That we look at other people and we say you say because i don 't see sin in myself, I think that i 'm basically a good person it 's much easier for me to see sin in you because frankly you 're a bad person, and i 'm a good person, but sin lies remember sin sin has 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 fooled me, so when I look at myself i don 't see my sin, and to be honest, when I look at you i don 't see your sin. Psychologists talk about something called the fundamental attribute error, and that means the person you think is a jerk. They aren't a jerk. They just acted like a jerk. That that there was that one thing where they acted like a jerk, and you said, they are a jerk. That is the fundamental attribute error. You're saying that that... that, that that thing that, that made an impression on you is who they really are. And you don't know. Um, maybe, they, maybe they're a jerk pretty often, but that doesn't mean they're intrinsically a jerk. Maybe that was the only time they were ever a jerk. And maybe it was because they were dealing with you that they were a jerk. You know, There's all kinds of complexity to that. And we can't simply assume that we can analyze who people are. We can't see our own sin and we can't see other people's sins. We can't see it clearly. So we have a model of Christ who shows us what we should be aiming at. Part of the problem is not simply that we don't see well. Part of the problem is we're looking in the wrong direction. Because the world tells us the way that we can have purpose, the way we can have meaning, the way that, the way that our lives can be rich and fulfilling is if other people help us achieve our goals that if other people are those means to an end, if other people quit being obstacles to us getting what we want, the world tells us, our sinful instincts tell us that that's the way we have meaning and purpose in our life. But Jesus says, no, that is exactly backwards. The way you have meaning in your life is by asking other people, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Is there something I can do that would be a service to you? And so Jesus says, the greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says the world's picture, what sin does when it when it changes the way we look at things, is it gives us the wrong target. So even if we could see clearly, we're just aiming in the wrong direction. And Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, even if you're not feeling like it, Go ahead and do it anyway," he says. Even if you, you know, I'm not sure if that's is that really what true humanity is all about. Is true humanity really serving other people? Um, Paul says, "Give it a give it a try." Paul Paul wrote this letter about twenty thirty years after the time that Jesus was was resurrected, and he said, "If you want to have meaning and purpose, how about this guy Jesus? We're still talking about him thirty years after he was crucified. How about that?" And people said, yeah, that kind of makes some sense. I'd like people to be talking about me. I'd like people to be saying he made a difference that, that they lived a useful life 30 years after they're gone. And of course, since then, it's been, it's been 2,000 years and we're still talking about Jesus because Jesus has shown us what it takes to have a significant life, how we can be, how we can have a meaningful life, how we can actually be true humans. So, so we have to aim at the right thing. And Paul says, even if you're not convinced, Look at Christ and say, you know what? I'd like more of what he had. Whatever it was that made him who he was, I'd like more of that. He says, submit to one another, not because you feel like submitting, but because of Christ's example, because you'd like to be more like Christ. So we don't see well and we don't aim at the right thing. But there's one more problem, which is that, that even if we could see well and even if we could aim at the right thing, the goal is perfection. Jesus told us that we are to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. And we say, well, I can't achieve perfect. Even if I could aim at the right thing, and even if I could see it clearly when I was aiming at it, I'm only human. I can't achieve perfection. And the good news there is that Jesus is not simply a model. Jesus is an aid. Jesus is a help. The writer of the Hebrews tells us this. He says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. So he says the first stop when you're in the hole is quit digging. Okay, so when you're in the hole, quit digging. So. Throw off the sin. Quit aiming at whatever it is you've been aiming at. You know, the, the corner office and the, you know, the, the Gulf Stream. Um, whatever it is non-pastors aim at. Um, so, um, so, uh, leave that behind and run with perseverance the, uh, run with endurance the race God has set before us. That means this is not a five-minute project. This is something that's gonna take some time. God's gonna, <laughs> Believe it or not, God's got a lot of work to do in you the same way he's got a lot of work to do in me. It's going to take some time and God's going to do it, but we have to run the race with uh, endurance. And how do we do that? We do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is the model. He is the model who shows us what we're aiming at. But more than that, he has not only initiated our faith, he's not only given us something, oh, I'd like to be like that, but he will perfect our faith. He initiates our faith and he brings it to completion. So... We keep our eyes on Christ. Jesus shows us what true humanity is like. Now, that tells us what we're aiming at. And now the, the next question is, okay, how much of my sin can I bring with me? Because, you know, I, it, it's good news for me that the world to come, the, the age, the, the coming age will not involve, will not involve your sin because, frankly, I'm pretty tired of your sin. But, you know, I've got some sins, I kind of like them, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like them, but they're comfy, they're cozy, they're, they're familiar, you know, they're like an old shoe with a hole in it. It's not a good shoe, but it fits so well. And and so I like kind of my sins. I don't really like them, but I kind of like them. And I'm wondering, can I bring those with me into the age to come? And the answer is no. God will exclude all sin From the coming age. That you're not bringing any sin, even those little cozy familiar sins that you like and dislike and sort of like, but you don't like, but you, you like. You can't bring any of those with you into the age to come. In the book of Revelation, uh, looking at, looking at the age to come, the, the, the visionary sees this. He says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. Period. That's it. Uh, whatever you're thinking that it would be nice if I could bring that with me, no. There will no longer be a curse on anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. That God cannot abide the sin that we would like to bring with us. So in the age to come, that's not going to be there. We say, but are they really so bad? I mean, I know your sins are bad, but mine, I mean, really... Come on. It's not like I'm a murderer or anything, you know. I'm not a terrorist, right? So, what's so bad about my sin? It's just the little, tiny, cozy sin. What's the big deal? Well. Uh, Again, sin lies to me, right? Sin says my sin's not so bad. But it's helpful to look at the scriptures and see the kinds of sins that God's concerned with. Um, In the book of Proverbs, we read this. There are six things the Lord hates. You know, the next time you hear somebody, you know, the Westboro Baptist goons or something like that, they talk about how God hates this and that. You know, it's helpful to actually look at the scriptures and see what God hates instead of just listening to some haters tell you what God hates. So what are the six things the Lord hates? What are the seven things he detests? Haughty eyes. that That's this idea that I'm better than you, that that I can look down on you. And I've never done that. I know you all did. (laughs) But would I do that? So haughty eyes. God hates haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Man, this is hitting pretty close to home, isn't it? All right, hands that kill the innocent. Phew. All right, I dodged one of them. Okay, all right. A heart that plots evil, plots. I mean, I even plotting. Feet that race to do wrong. A false witness who pours out lies again with the lying. This is not going to be very easy, is it? And a person who sows discord in the family. Wow, these are the things that God hates. Those sound pretty familiar. You know, we don't have to be terrorists to have evil in us. And these are the things that will not be part of the age to come. The writer of the psalm says this, they, the wicked, will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly. So... It may be comfy today, but you have to ask yourself, how's it going to feel after 10,000 years or 100,000 years? Do you really think you want to be wearing that shoe? It's not coming with you. And Jesus says this. He says, when you're thinking what you should aim at, in, in his era, people would aim at the Pharisees. They'd say, those people, they really take their religion seriously. They they do a lot better than me in terms of of of. Uh, trying to root out the sin in their life. And Jesus says this, he says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the best people you know, unless it's better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, the standard is zero, not a little bit. Not C's get degrees, but a 100%, you have to ace the exam. But before we despair there is some good news. The good news is this. Only God loves you enough to judge you. There's only one judge we have to be concerned about, and it's not your neighbor, and it's not your spouse, and it's not your children, and it's not your parents. The only judge, ultimately, whose vision is correct is God. And only God loves you enough to judge you. Jesus told the story we heard with the children. He told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, those those experts, the people who really took their religion seriously. And the other was a despised tax collector, a collaborator and a thief. And the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. There's a sinner. But the sinner, the tax collector, he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, Returned home justified before God for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says you have to ask for help. If you just simply look at other people and say they're worse, yes, some sin is worse than others, but none of it's coming with you. Your sins are tiny little sins. Who could, who could complain about those sins? Right now, there's bad people, but none of it's coming with you into the age to come. And Paul says this. He says, you know, to be honest, why do you think you're so hot? You know, you know, you you you, you had a good upbringing, you know, you had you had circumstances in your life were arranged just so, and and uh, you you have enough money to get by. You were able to find a job at last, and and things are looking okay. And you're a pretty good guy, right? He says, how much of that was your doing? How much of that was just handed to you by an accident of birth or people around you who invested in you? He says, what do you have that you contributed to that? He says, what gives you the right to make such a judgment? When you look at other people, you don't know their story. You don't know what it was that led them to that place. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? But most importantly of all, there's no good way to throw other people under the bus in a loving way. You know, you just can't do that. There's no good way to do that. John writes this. He says, the person loving a brother or sister stays in the light. We'll come back to that. There's nothing in the light that causes a person to stumble. But the person who hates a brother or sister, the someone who acts in a non-loving way, they live in the darkness. They are in the darkness and they live in the darkness. And they don't know where to go because the darkness blinds the eyes. That they cannot be as sin-free as they say because they're unloving. They are not demonstrating the kind of true humanity that Jesus did. You can't throw other people under the bus in a loving way. So what did he mean when he said, the person who loves in a brother uh, or sister stays in light? He means that if you're not sure, that a good rule of thumb is to behave with other people in a loving way. That if you do that, you can't go very far wrong. Whereas if you start on the idea, well, they're not such good people, I don't need to love them they haven 't done anything to make me dis to, to to deserve my love, then that is a place that is right next to darkness. But if you say you know what i 'm going to love them despite all of their many flaws, that's a place that's in the light so I was trying to think, how do I close this? I mean, I could talk about sin all day long and I hear those nervous chuckles out there. So, (laughs) so how do I do this? Well, there, there's one, there's one more bit of good news. So the first bit of good news is that only God is the, or the only judge we have to worry about is God. But the other, the other bit of good news is this. We can face judgment without any fear because Christ is our Redeemer. So he will judge. The, the writer of Revelation says this, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named faithful and true for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. There will be judgment, but it will be a fair judgment. No one will, will, will face judgment and then say, I got a raw deal. That wasn't, that wasn't right. Everybody will say, you know, that was, that was fair. I can't complain. And he wages war. He wages a righteous war. Who Who is the war against whom he he wages? Paul tells us that in in Ephesians. I didn't have room in the paper. I've already got too many. So Paul tells us that our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are the unseen forces in the spiritual realms. So he says he wages a righteous war. And then I'm just going to go through these very quickly uh, because there's so many. I could have gone through uh, dozens of these. Uh, in Second Corinthians, Paul says this, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Peter says, uh, Isaiah says this, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. Peter says he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. That this mystery of what it was that Christ did. There's different pictures. Some some pictures in scripture describe it as as the ransom of a of a of a of a captive that somebody would be would be captured and you would trade money to get him back. That that Jesus ransomed us. Other pictures in scripture say that Jesus uh, uh, sacrificed himself to pay a debt. Other pictures describe it as as um, Jesus took the sin on Himself so that God could pour all of His wrath out on the sin. God could judge the sin on Jesus instead of on us. So there's different images, but the idea is that Jesus took our sin on Himself so that we could be healed. But more than healed, read what we see in Romans. Whoop, too far. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So Jesus Jesus puts us at, uh, in the right status with God. But Peter says this. He says, he personally carried our sin in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. That is not simply about where we go in the age to come. It's about what we do with this life. And then Jesus says this in John. He says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. Today, already, this is not something that is limited to the age to come. He says, they will never be condemned for their sins, but have already passed from death to life. Jesus says, because I have taken your sin on myself, and because God has judged your sin in me, you have eternal life right now. So let us run with endurance, that race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus, who has initiated our faith, and who will bring it to perfection. Jesus knew that this was a lot for us to take in. I don't know if two weeks or maybe two months is enough to really explore what the what the scriptures teach us, what the gospel tells us about sin, and how Jesus took it on himself. But Jesus knew it wouldn't be enough to simply have words. There aren't enough fill-in-the-blank forms in the world to really get this into us. And so he said, I want this to be a whole body experience. I want you to take this in the way you take in the food you eat. And so he gave us a meal. And he said, every time you eat this meal, I want you to remember this. So we're going to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's table in a few moments. And the idea here is that the same way we 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 sustain our bodies by eating food, that we sustain our lives, our spiritual lives, by Christ. And so I invite you to, to prepare yourselves for the gift that is offered from this table. We're going to sing a song. It's the best song I know about the nature of the invitation that Jesus is extending to us. So I'm not going to spend a lot of words on it. But if you have any doubts, are you welcome here? The answer is you are welcome because this is not my table. It's not the church's table. It's the Lord's table. And he invites those who would find him to meet him here.